And so the question we're really going to be examining today is, how do we make decisions that are in line with God's will? Is that a good question? Now, I wish that at the end of this, I could have a simple answer and say, this is it. Do this, and every time you will know what God's will is in this situation. From buying a lantern to making the large, massive, life-changing decisions in our life. But maybe what will result from this is simply you realizing that it's not so simple after all. And maybe you'll realize some of the reasons why it's not so simple. And hopefully, you'll find some principles for finding God's will for your life. And as we go through, we're going to be going through Acts chapter 16. Okay, so open up your Bible to Acts. And as we go into this, I want you to think of maybe a decision that you're struggling with at this moment. Okay, I'm sure there's someone here who has something that they've been wrestling over and thinking, should I do this? Should I do that? What is God's will in my life? From a whole range of things. And maybe if we go this through this, maybe use that as something to, to sort of relate this sermon to as as we go through. Now, for those who are new here, what we're doing is we've, for the last several months now, we've been going through the book of Acts. We started from chapter 1, chapter by chapter, going through, and now we're up to chapter 16. We started off with the resurrection of Jesus, and then we've been looking at the, new, um, the beginning of the Christian church. And we've been, we've been seeing how this movement has essentially changed the world in which we live. And last week, Daniel unpacked the Jerusalem Council. And for those who remember, it all began with the question, some people were saying that some of the new believers, especially the Gentile believers, had to be circumcised in order to, and keep the other Jewish um, regulations in order to uh, become a part of the, the Christian community and to be saved. And there's this huge big debate that takes place, and at the end of it, they decide, no, that's not, that's not the case. And so they get these, um, this letter, and they give it to Paul and Barnabas, and they take it back to Antioch to give this, this, um, the, the, the council's decisions to the people, the church back in Antioch. And then they're going to, I guess, everywhere they go, share this decision that the church as a whole had come up with. And that brings us to the story where we're up to now, which is... And the story really begins in the end of Acts chapter 15. So Acts chapter 15, verse 36. And we're going to read right through from verse 36 to 41. It says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having commanded by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through, through Syria and um, Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, I'm glad this story is in the Bible. Because sometimes we have this really idealistic picture of what the early church was like. We think of the miracles, we think of the mass conversions, we think of the way the Holy Spirit came upon these people and they just went out and changed the world. But sometimes we forget that along the way, there were all these little bumps, all these little times when the, the journey was not so smooth, when quite sometimes terrible things took place. And here we see a spot where the journey certainly is not, is not smooth. Now, just before this, Paul had just got back from his, 
first missionary journey. Now, I'm not sure how well you can see this, but basically they had started in Antioch, gone down to the island of Cyprus where Barnabas was from, headed back up into Pamphylia, a number of churches there, and then came all the way back. And when this time Paul and Barnabas had gone back to Antioch, Paul's heart started to go back to the people and the new converts in the lands where he'd previously gone. And he started to think, I wonder how they're going. I wish I could be there to strengthen them. I wish I could, I could go back and, and continue to share and continue the work that we've already started. And so he shares this with Barnabas, and they both think, this is a great idea. Let's go on another missionary journey back to these same places. However, here we find our first lantern situation. And so go back in your Bibles with me to, to verse 37, to Acts 15, verse 37 and 38, and we're going to unpack this lantern situation. It says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So on this previous trip, as I said, they first, they went down to Cyprus, and the journey there was not an easy one. All sorts of opposition, all sorts of persecution, and it was a really, really tough journey. And then from there, Paul and Barnabas were just zealous, and they thought, let's keep going. So they go up to, up to um, Perga here, and at, at that point, the young person who's with them by the name of John, also known as Mark, he starts thinking, you know what, maybe this isn't for me. And at this point, he abandons them. And he goes all the way back down to Jerusalem back here and leaves Paul and Barnabas basically doing it on them, their own. And because of this, when they were going to go on their second journey, Paul said, you know what, let's not take John um, with us on this second trip, John Mark, because he's a liability. Is that what Barnabas saw? What did Barnabas see in this situation? Barnabas saw someone who was an asset. He thought, you know what? Even though he abandoned us on the last trip, God still has a work for him. There is still something for him. He is still useful to us. And maybe if we give him this second time, he may be restored and, and maybe we really make him into this missionary that God has called him to be. Now in this situation, Paul, so Paul sees him as a liability Barnabas sees him as an asset. Who was right? What do you think? Barnabas was right? What about Paul? Was there some right things about what Paul said? Yeah? Maybe? Not sure? What was Paul doing? He was going on a missionary trip. What was the reason for what he was doing? He was trying to start these new churches. He was facing all sorts of opposition he had to know that the people that were with him were there and ready for the task. And just the fact that we have some disagreement in the church over this at the moment kind of really highlights the, the fact that I'm trying to make that sometimes, in a way, there can kind of almost be two right answers for a situation. Is that possible? Are you sure? Let me take you to Proverbs chapter 26. I'm going to give you a quick little illustration here. Proverbs 26 verse 4 says this, Don't answer the foolish arguments of fools, or you will become as foolish as they are. Okay, good little piece of advice there. So if someone comes to you in just a foolish way, and they're, and they're advocating something absolutely foolish, 
and their arguments are foolish, it says, don't even bother responding to them. Why not? You'll become foolish. You'll sink down to their level, and, and you'll become like them. You'll become foolish like them. So is that, pretty, is that pretty clear? It's pretty clear until you read the next verse. It says, Be sure to answer the foolish arguments of fools, or they will become wise in their own estima- estimation. So if you come across a foolish person making foolish arguments, do you answer them or do you not answer them? And the answer is yes. Both. What do you do in these sorts of situations? The first one has has reason in certain situations. The second one has um, can be useful as well. What do we do? And the first principle I want to suggest to you is that two people with good, biblical, other-centered Others-centered motives can see the same situation completely differently. Do you agree with that? Okay. So what do we do in these situations? I'd like to suggest a, a verse in James chapter 1, verse 5. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all, without finding fault, and it will be given to you. The solution to when we have two opposing, potentially good options... And how do we decide between the two? The solution to that is this mysterious thing that the Bible calls wisdom. And godly, um, spirit-inspired wisdom is given by God, and we need to seek Him in prayer. So our second thing there is to pray for wisdom. So let's, let's see what happened in this story. Verse 39, it says, And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from one another. Is this a sad story? fairly sad because here we have one of the most um, strongest missionary partnerships that the early church has seen so far they've gone to these um, they've started planted brand new churches with um, withstood all sorts of things and over this one little issue we see a complete split now while their reasoning right might have been right their approach to the situation i believe was wrong but they weren't able to see it from the other person's perspective. And I think that very often that churches across Australia and churches across the world even often get divided over little things and potentially over things that both options might have merit, which is potentially a sad thing. So what do we do in these sorts of situations? I'd like to suggest being gentle with people who see things differently to you and examining their motives. For Barnabas... If he examined Paul's motives, what would he have seen? He would have seen someone who genuinely was seeking after lost souls, genuinely genuinely trying to do God's work, and and he would have realized that that is the exact same motives that he had as well. And so be gentle with people who see things differently to you and examine their motives. All right, let's go on to... Oh, okay, let's see what happens in, in the end of the story. Okay. So verse 39, let's read that again. It says, And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia. So in this situation, what was God's will? Was God's will what Barnabas wanted, or was God's will what Paul wanted? Both? Okay, 
And what we see is that out of this situation, even though it's messy, we see that God ends up with two missionary partnerships on two separate missionary trips. And if you go through the rest of the New Testament, you see these little insights where Mark jumps back up again. And so as you go through, even Paul was reconciled to him, and he's even the person that we believe wrote the Gospel of Mark as well. So because of what Barnabas did, we see that this person was restored into this, this um, great position in God's work. But as we go through Paul's journey, and as we're going to see today, he suffers um, hardships and persecutions that probably would have been the complete wrong thing to take um, John Mark along with him. And so we see that even though this situation was so messy, God's work still comes out. And I'd like to suggest that God still blesses messes. Okay, so this situation is a messy situation. A disagreement, they go off in their separate ways, but God still blesses messes. Let's go to our second scenario in this chapter. Um, Acts chapter 16 and verse 1. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So here we see Paul. He goes, um, Barnabas went to the southern churches. He went up to the northern churches and he gets there and he's got Silas, but they need an assistant like they had in John Mark. And he's thinking, who's going to be Mark's replacement? So he starts going around and he finds a young man by the name of Timothy, someone he'd probably come across before in his previous time he was there. And he thinks, maybe this is the person. But how does he know it's the right person? Here we see our lantern situation number two. The first, thing that, the first thing that we see Paul does is he goes and he gets references from the, the two of the cities. And we find this in, in verse 2. It says, He was spoken well of by the brothers at Lystra and, I, and Iconium. So he has a lot of people supporting him, saying, yeah, this is a good person. Awesome. However, there's one problem here. Timothy's mum is Jewish. Timothy's grandmother is Jewish. But his father is a Greek. Now, you might be thinking, why is that an issue? Well, because of this, Timothy is uncircumcised, which is a big thing for in, in the rest of the Jewish um, population. And Paul's, um, Paul's method when he would go into a place, when he would first go to the synagogue, Paul would waltz into a new town, go into the synagogue, stand up there, and he would speak to the Jews first. Now, if he had someone who, an uncircumcised person, who was going with him, this might not make it quite as easy. This might put up an obstacle for what's going on. So what should Paul do? Now, in Galatians chapter 2, we have a very similar situation. And this is what Paul does in this. It says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed leaders, I presented them to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. So here, Paul and Barnabas, this is previous to the current story that we're doing. They go to Jerusalem, and they're talking with the people, and they come across this situation. And it says, Yet not even Titus, who was with them, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So in this situation, there's these false believers who are saying that 
You need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Paul comes down with Titus, and does he give in? He doesn't. He says, there's no way we're giving in to that, because we do not want to give the message that salvation is anything else other than by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone. So what does Paul do in the situation with Timothy? Should he do the same thing? Let's see what happens. Okay, fair. Acts chapter 16 and verse 2. It says, he was a, This is speaking of Timothy. He was well spoken of by the brothers at last and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and this is what he did. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for he knew that, it, for they knew, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Does Paul do the same thing? One situation, there's no way Titus is getting circumcised because that will send a wrong message. Here, Timothy, you need to be circumcised as we go on this missionary journey. And what were they doing as they were going around? They were delivering the message from the Jerusalem council, which basically outlined that they didn't need to be circumcised. Is Paul being inconsistent here? On the surface, he probably is. Now, was it the right decision for Titus not to get circumcised? It was. Because if he was not circumcised, if he, w- if he was, it would have sent a false message about salvation, and potentially people could have been lost through that. Was it the right decision to have um, Timothy circumcised? Yes, it was. Because they needed to make Jesus as accessible as possible and to remove any obstacle that came between them and the message being proclaimed in the various places where they went to. So here we learn another um, principle. And you might, are you seeing now that following God's will is not necessarily black and white? Sometimes it's tricky, and there's a whole range of reasons why it's tricky. But what we can know is that what is it, the right decision in one situation can be the wrong decision in another. So what do we do in these sorts to work this out? We need that mysterious thing that the Bible calls wisdom that we get through praying and asking God to give it to us. Scene number three, Acts chapter 16. Here we see the third lantern, lantern situation. And it says, so Acts chapter 16, sorry, verse 6 through to 10. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to, weak, to speak the word in Asia. And when they come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, so here we go. We see... They've gone up, Antioch, Tarsus, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, and they're about to go into Asia. It's the obvious place next, isn't it? It's the next thing geographically to where they're about to go. And they'll go there, and they're going into Asia, and what message do they get from God? Forbidden. Don't go into Asia. Door slammed. Okay, so what they do, they then go up north, up towards Bithynia, and they go up there, and they go to try to go into Bithynia. And what happens? 
Holy Spirit slams the door, don't go into Bithynia. That's a lot of walking to do to not actually get into these places. And so it's when they're there and they make their way to Troas, and in Troas they get God gives them this vision. And in this vision, a man from Macedonia is seen saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And here we see a door is suddenly thrown wide open and Paul immediately says, we now have a clear message from God, what we should do, and they walk through it. Number five, God guides us by opening and closing doors. Now the interesting thing in this story here is that each of the doors that were closed actually got Paul closer to the door that he wanted him to go through. Has anyone ever experienced those sort of situations in their life? I remember when I finished year 12, I was going to have my gap year, and I had this big plan that I was going to work and do a whole season at at the snow, at the snow fields in Canada. And I prayed about this, and I thought, maybe this is where God wants me to go. And in the process, I actually won from this competition two snowboards. And I thought, whoa, this must be God directing me in this direction. This must be God's will for me to do this. And so everything was coming together, and I started walking through that door. And I went up, and I did the interview, and it went really well for the job. I'm sure I, I felt like I was going to get the job. And my friend who was going with me came out of that interview, and he said, I'm not going. Changed his mind, and then everything fell apart, and the door was slammed shut. And I'm thinking, what's happened here? I thought God was leading in this. I thought God helped me win those two snowboards. But the thing is, straight after that, another door opened up. And because, and my friend and another friend, this is different people, were going over to America for six months to go to, to the Arise program. Now, at this stage, I had already worked myself up and I was planning to do some big trip in my gap year. I'd already decided I wanted to do that. And when the first one fell through, I was just like, what's the next thing? I just need to do something in my gap year. I've already prepared and, I've psyched my, and I'm ready to do this. What am I going to do? And so I was in the right place to say yes to that door that God had opened up to go and do the Arise program. And if I did not do that, I probably wouldn't be up here preaching to you today. And what that tells me is that sometimes God uses closed doors to lead us to and to prepare us for open doors. Okay? And there's a cool little thing that I'm sure you missed in this passage. I missed it until I was reading through one of the commentaries and it pointed it out to me. In verse 8, so Acts chapter 16, we're going to read verse 8 to 10. And as we read through this, I want you to pay close attention to, to the tense of the to whether it's in first person or third person as we read through, okay? So verse 8 to 10, you're saying, is, is, is Luke, who's au- the author of this book, is he writing in first person or third person? It says, So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately... We sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. What happened? Did you notice a change there? What, what was it? Is it was in first person or third person to begin with? Third person. It's saying they were doing this, they were doing this, and the whole first of the cha- part of the chapter is like that. Get to Troas, he sees this vision, and then it says, and then we went down to here. We went, we went, we went, and the rest of the chapter almost is, is like that. 
Here we have the tiniest little clue. He doesn't say it straight out, but this is where Luke joins the trip. So in this little list going all over the place, into Asia, up to Bithynia, all the place, ending up at Troas, trying to find where God wanted them to be, is because of this, they come across Luke, and Luke joins the trip. Can you see how God uses closed doors to lead us to, to and to prepare us for open doors? Let's go to our third... Sorry, this is... No, I'm finishing this, this scene here. So Acts chapter 16 and verse 11 through to 15. And here we find them make their way into the place that God had ordained for them to go. Verse 11 says, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of a ro- district of Macedonia and a Roman colo- colony, we remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said, to what um, said, was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed on us. I did a little bit of a Google Maps. I got on Google Earth and I sort of calculated the distance that they had gone. Now remember this is on foot. And they had gone around about 1,500 kilometers by this stage and through this they had disputes they had uncertainty they had all sorts of challenges they had a fair few closed doors not knowing where god was leading them and here we see them coming face to face with the person that god had planned all along for them to talk to and it's lydia and they get there and they share the word with her and she accepts the good news god opens up her heart she's baptized and then and the church in philippi the church that the, the, the epistle called Philippians is written to, is started. Can you see that so far, all the way through this, God's will is often uncertain, but the whole way from start to finish, God is in control. But there's one other person that God, well, at least one other person that God had sent them all that way to visit. And to find this person, we're going to go to our final scene, which is my favorite scene of this whole thing. So... Acts chapter 16, verse 16 to 24. It says, As we were going to the place of prayer, so this is a place outside the city, we were met by a slave girl who had a a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. The ancient world at this time was much more aware of the supernatural, much more aware of of spiritual um, sort of things and and, and the gods and all that sort of stuff than, than often we are today. And before someone, a commander would go to war, before someone would get married, all those things, they would try and get some sort of indication from the gods that they were doing the right thing. And here we see a slave who has this ability of divination, who's telling fortune-telling and making a lot of money for her owners. It goes on to say, verse 17, She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Was that true? It was true. Was that annoying? You're going to find that it, it was annoying. I remember I shared with you a number of sermons ago about that I used to go busking. And I remember, like when you're going busking, you always want to have people who come and they really get into it. 
But I remember one time I had this lady who came who thought it was her God-given role to do interpretive-type dancing before me while I was a little kid trying to play the saxophone there. And that, that was fine, except for while she was doing that, and she did this for a long time, no one gave us any money at all. And I think this is a little bit how Paul is feeling here. Here he's trying to proclaim the gospel, and he's this person who's, who's, for whatever reason, calling out and just saying, this is, these are servants of the Most High God here to proclaim to you salvation. And she goes over and over and over and over and over again. And this is what Paul does in response. Verse 18. And, and this she kept doing for a few minutes. No. This she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Now, this is not the usual way that miracles take place in the New Testament. Frustration, anger, hazard at her, and then the miracle takes place. Praise God. Okay, but as a result of this, we see something quite terrible from Paul's perspective take place. But when her owners saw that they, their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner stocks and fastened their feet in the stocks. In, in a, sorry, in a prison, fastened their feet into the stocks. Things are getting pretty nasty here. And this is the sort of thing that Paul knew all along could easily happen. They drag him before the rulers, they're falsely accused, they're stripped down, they're beaten terribly, thrown into prison, and put into the stocks. Now, the stocks were not just a device for holding them there for security. It was actually more of a torture device that would put them in this really uncomfortable position so that it was hard to sleep, it was hard to get comfortable, and remembering that they're bruised and bloody and, and in this terribly, terrible condition, they're in there, and things are not going well for them. Where is God's will in this situation? Now, verse 25 tells us something very interesting. It says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. If you were in this situation, what would you feel like doing? Praying? Probably. Singing? Maybe not. Think of the other prisoners here. Think of the guards. Whenever anyone else was thrown into prison, especially in the stocks like this, they would have heard screaming, they would have heard cursing and swearing, and all sorts of things like that. Everyone is just listening, completely surprised, that instead of hearing all those things, they hear the sound of singing and of prayer. What was going on here? How were they able to do this? Later on, Paul writing to the church in Philippi, this is his very church, he says these words, and this is, you might be familiar with this verse, it's a pretty famous verse, it says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Have we learned that lesson? I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, 
abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The reason that Paul could have joy in this situation, the reason that Paul could sing praises in this situation was that he knew that he was following God's will, even though it seemed uncertain, even though he didn't know why he was in prison, he knew that God had led him there, and he knew that God was leading him out of there. And when we have this sort of assurance that we are following God's will, we can have the same sort of contentment in whatever situation we find ourselves in, because we know that God has brought us there, and God can get us out. But this is where something, again, unexpected takes place. Verse 26, it says, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately the, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were loosed, unfastened. <laughs> is this a, a miracle here? Now, a normal earthquake, while it might bring the building down, it's probably not going to fling the doors open and undo the stocks. But here we see a, a work of God very clearly communicating to them that this is not where God wants them to be. Very clearly communicating to them that God's will for them is to free them. Would you agree? God's will for them is for them to leave that prison. Yes? No? Let's see how the story finishes. Verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw that his prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Hang on. Didn't you say, or at least some of you say, that it was obviously God's will for them to have freedom? Remember, if Paul wanted to be free, he could have stayed home. He knew that there were dangers. He knew he would probably end up in prison from time to time. He knew he would probably have shipwrecks. He would probably be beaten. He would probably have all sorts of challenges like that. He knew that. And he sees this situation and where everyone else would have said, it's clear that God's will is for me to run away. He discerned that God's will was to do something much, much more radical. Verse 29, it says, And the jailer called for lights, and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before, before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here we see the jailer comes down, falls at Paul's feet, and is trembling. Why is he trembling? Remember, who had seen these two men get dragged into the prison, bleeding and bruised? It was the jailer. Who had fastened these men into these torturous stocks and allowed them to suffer there? It was the jailer. Who, while he was doing that, had listened to them singing songs of praise? It was the jailer. And when he sees Christ-like love being displayed, unconditional love by Paul, he falls to his knees and he trembles. When he sees the same love that Jesus displayed upon the cross when he looked out upon his murderers and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When he saw the same love that Paul himself saw when Stephen was stoned, oh sorry, that Paul saw when he was um, approving of them stoning Stephen and Stephen just before he died looked out and said, 
do not hold this against them. When here the jailer sees this same incredible Christ-like love, he falls to his knees and he says to them, what must I do to be saved? Remember when Jesus was on the cross, he could have just clicked his fingers and thousands of angels could have come down and rescued him. He had freedom within his grasp and he laid that aside and he took up the cross. Here we see Paul has freedom in his grasp and he lays it aside to bring salvation to this jailer. God's main priority is not for our comfort. God's main priority is for the salvation that he paid for on the cross to go to the world. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And this has guided everyone throughout this entire journey. Barnabas, why did he want to keep John? He wanted to see him saved. Why did Paul not want to keep John? He wanted to see these other places saved. He didn't want anything to hinder that. Why was Titus not circumcised? Salvation. Why was Timothy circumcised? Salvation. Why did Paul not run away? Salvation. And in this situation, to everyone else, it looks like Paul was the one who was in chains and the jailer was the one free. But Paul realized that it wasn't the jailer, that it wasn't him that was in chains, but it was the jailer who was in the chains of sin needing to be saved. And he realized that he was indeed the free one. And Paul, as he prayed and he sang there and he connected with God, he became so plugged into what the God was doing there, so plugged into what the Holy Spirit was doing, that he realized that God's purpose for him was not to es- escape, but to show Christ's extravagant, undeserved, unconditional love for the jailer. And the jailer was there trembling away, and he remembered the words that the slave girl had been yelling annoyingly over and over and over, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation, and it all clicks. And he says, what must I do to be saved? In verse 30, it says, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. You see, salvation is not about what we do. They ask, what shall I do? And Paul says, it's not about what you do. It's about what you believe. And the reason it's not about what we do is because Jesus has already done it for us. On the cross, he paid the price. He did the work. He was beaten. He was tortured. He was dragged down there and hung upon on a tree so that we might live. And when we accept salvation, it's not about what we do, but we simply believe in and trust what Jesus has already done for us. And here we see this man does this. He's baptized, and then he's a, and we see that he's suddenly completely changed, changed, and he ministers to the needs of Paul and the others there in, in the prison. What I want you to do now is open up your, get out your Connect cards. I think I've got one. Yeah, anyway, I've got them. So pull out your Connect cards. Now, can the deacons, if there's anyone who doesn't have one of these, just raise your hand and the deacons will come forward and go through and with pens as well. If you need a pen, raise your hand and give you one of these Connect cards. 
These connect cards are simply a way that we can respond to the word of God and that God has, the things that God has revealed to us. So on your connect card, you'll see that the number one option for you is, God, please give me the wisdom to know your will. And today, I think it's pretty clear that it's pretty hard to work out God's will sometimes. And so we desperately need wisdom. We need to be so connected like Paul was, that in that prison, he can, dis- he can realize that he- God's will was not for him to flee, but to minister to the jailer. So if that's your will, if you want God to give you wisdom to know his will, tick that box. Number two, God, help me to be content when I'm following your will, even when times are tough. Think back to Paul in the prison, singing praises, singing hymns and praying, having joy in his heart, even though he was chained to these torturous stocks. Today, if you want to tell God, help me to be content when I'm following your will, even when times are tough, tick that box. And remember, we do this when we realize that God has led us to where we are today and God will get us through to to tomorrow. Number three, if you're someone here today who just like the jailer has seen a picture of God's unconditional love and you want to say, that you put your trust in belief in what Jesus has done for you upon the cross, then tick, Jesus, I believe and trust in you. Thank you for saving me. And finally, just like Paul changed that whole prison by showing and reflecting the unconditional love of Jesus, today, if you want to say, Jesus, help me to have your self-sacrificing love like Paul did, tick that final box there. On the right, if you, want to, if you would like to receive Bible studies, find out about baptism, support the Tweed Church campus, or receive the Kingscliff Church newsletter, you can tick those things as well.